Welcome uh, to Deer Creek Church. I'm Brett Weston. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, we are so glad you're here. So today, before we get started in the sermon, we get to celebrate a baptism. How awesome is that? And throughout redemptive history, God has always had a sign for his covenant people, and the children of God's covenant people have always graciously been included in God's covenant. Acts 2, 38 through 39 says this, it says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And listen to what it says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We good? All right, we're good. So little Noelle Hamstra is being baptized today because of her parents' faith. The covenant sign of baptism is not a profession of faith by little Noelle, who's very happy right now, nor does baptism save her, as we know. And, but as I say that, I want to say, too, it is not just symbolic. It is a very real sign and seal of God's grace. It signifies that the promise of salvation is for this covenant child and that God will be faithful to those promises in Noel's life when she is old enough to respond in repentance, faith, and obedience. In that response, if and when it comes, will also be a gift from God that we pray for and look forward to in faith. So perfect timing, right, as little Noel has um, decided to just chill for a bit. Um, I would like to invite the uh, family up. So we have Victoria Hamstra and um, Noel's dad, Aaron, uh, if you all, some of you know him, he is in Fort Bragg right now going through um, special forces training. So what, what may be a first ever here, we're FaceTiming in, um, Baptist, we are so high tech here at Deer Creek Church, aren't we? And then uh, we have Victoria's dad here is going to be holding Aaron up, literally, um, <laughs> supporting him during this baptism. So um, if I could also have, uh, Trevor's going to be helping me out here today. Trevor's our uh, youth pastor here. So uh, Aaron, Victor, Aaron, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I got you. Awesome. So let me, let me get you a mic here. I'll turn this on. We good? All right. So Aaron, I'll have you hold. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So. Uh, Victoria, we, the reason we, we bring parents up here, the reason we, we do this publicly is because these guys are not alone, are they? So they're Noel's parents, but they're not doing this alone. Deer Creek Church will be praying with you. We will be um, showing and telling little Noel the gospel. We will be um, preaching that to her, praying for her. And so that's why we bring you guys up here. And so um, I'll have a question for you all in a bit. But before I do, a few questions for uh, Victoria and Erin. So, all right. So first of all, do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ in the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? If so, you can just say yes. 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 Nice. Did y'all hear that? Second, do you claim God's covenant promises on Noel's behalf, and do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for her salvation as you do for your own? Yes. Yes. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before her a godly example, that you will pray with and for her, 
that you will teach her the doctrines of our holy faith and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Well, as I mentioned before, uh, this isn't just for Victoria and Aaron, this is for us as well. And so I have a question for you all. So when Noelle, so from this day forward, she'll be called a child of the covenant. And when she asks all of us, when she asks you guys, what does that mean? You guys can say, you are promised to God, Noelle. That's what we get to tell this little kiddo as she grows up. So as our covenant family, it's important we answer a question. I'm going to ask you a question too. You can stay seated as you answer this. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? Yes. Awesome. All right. Well, here we go. So let me take this little kiddo and we'll see if she, see how she does here. Hello. I have six of these, so hopefully I can. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Noel Hamstra, child of the covenant, because of your parents' faith and because of God's love for you, I baptize you in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Oh, you did so good. You did so good. Let's give a round of applause here. She did awesome. All right. Great. Well, I'll let you guys go have a seat. And um, yeah, thank you for letting us be a part of Noel's journey of faith. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then um, we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this reminder. Oh, we thank you for baptism. We thank you for the sign and seal that we are included in your covenant family, not because we've done anything, not because we're worthy or worth it or anything like that, but we just sit there and receive your grace running down over our heads. And so we thank you so much for this reminder. I pray that we would think on our own baptism as well uh, as we celebrate Noel's today and that you would remind us of the faith that you want us to show, not just to her, but to each other in this faith community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Well, thank you. So now that that went well, I can just say that was the first time I'd ever done that. So um, didn't want to say that beforehand, but let's see how it went. So before I, I jump into the sermon today, I do um, want to, you know, as a family, as a family of faith, we get to celebrate um, new life and we also get to join with uh, in mourning for people in our covenant family here. Um, who, who have gone to be with the Lord. And so I just wanted to let our, our family here know that this past Friday morning, Faith Skirdla went to be with the Lord. Uh, after battling cancer, she's finally been healed and is face-to-face -face with Jesus. And so if you can be praying for Nate and the kids, uh, they're here this morning. And uh, Nate has done a great job navigating the family through all this. And um, they're going to be having the, the funeral, the memorial in um, Nebraska and uh, early next month. And so we'll be letting you guys know uh, probably as early as next week just how you can be praying more, how you can support them, and what we can do as a family. So, um, yes. Well, for those of you that weren't here uh, last week, uh, you are joining us in the middle of a three-week series entitled, Can God Really Use Me? And many of us in this room ask or have asked that question. See, we want to know Am I a part of, of being used by God 
to turn back the effect of sin and death in his creation, to redeem his creation. Can God use me in that? But sometimes we find ourselves feeling like God can't use us. Either he can't or maybe he just hasn't. And so last week we talked about how it seems like we are waiting for God sometimes to call us into something big and different, when in reality God is waiting on us to notice how he's already using us in the ordinary, in the everyday. And it's most often in that ordinary and every day, as we're going about that, we're being faithful to that, that God calls us into something big or different. And so this week, we're going to continue to look at John 21 and how sometimes we feel like God can't use us or won't use us because of our guilt, our shame, and our regret over our sin. So maybe you're out there today. Most of us have been there at one point, um, whether you're there or not, um, now or not. But you think, maybe I've done too much. God, I want you to use me. I want to be available to you, but I've just done too much wrong. I want you to use me, but I've got this thing in my life that, that, that if you knew about it, it would be unforgivable, unusable. And so we're going to look at John 21 today and find out that that's just simply not true. And I remember uh, Aaron and I were serving as missionaries in East Asia about 10 years ago. And God put it on the three, three of us, three of us friends, put it on our hearts to start a arm of Campus Crusade for Christ dedicated solely to reaching unreached people groups, groups that had never heard, no witness, no missionary, no scriptures in their language. God put it on our hearts, the three of us, Casey, Nathan, and myself, to go start a new ministry just to reach them. And so if you're familiar with the perspectives on the world Christian movement, how many of you have, have heard of that? It is put on by the U.S. Center for World Missions. It is one of the most impressive, incredible tools used over the past decades to mobilize men and women to the mission field. And so we actually, as we led this ministry that we started, we actually got to go fly out to William Carey University named after the father of modern missions, William Carey, and learn from these guys, these men and women, how to take this material back to East Asia and how to mobilize the house church to reach unreached people groups. Pretty cool, right? And so we arrived on William Carey University and we stayed in Gladys Allward Dormitory, who Gladys Allward is um, here with a faith. She's a, an incredible self-sacrificing missionary. So we got to stay in that dormitory. And not only that, we scheduled a dinner with Dr. Ralph Winter, not the movie director, but one of the most influential missiologists in the past decades. Has mobilized tons of people to the mission field, done more to affect world evangelization than perhaps any other missions leader. We got to have dinner with this guy. So it's, we, we scheduled it. We got on the plate. So we spent all day meeting with these famous people, just getting vision and mission dumped on us. It was awesome. And so we're sitting in Gladys Allward Dormitory on the campus of William Carey University, talking about how great the day was, what we learned, what we're going to take back. And I did what probably every great missionary before me has ever done. Gladys Allward, William Carey. I got up and I farted on Casey Morgan's pillow. <laughs> Not proud of it, but I did. So it turns out Casey has a pillow thing. He hates people. He won't even let his own wife touch his pillow. So Casey jumps up, starts shouting at me. 
in Gladys Allward Dormitory in William Carey University. I respond back with some strong words. He grabs one of my shirts and threatens to do something worse than I ever threatened to do to his pillow, to my shirt. We start running around, doors are slamming, we're shouting. So all these other missionaries at Gladys Allward Dormitory on William Carey University start peeking out of their doors. And they see two great world-changing missionaries up in each other's faces shouting about ruining each other's stuff. So we were so mad at each other, we had to cancel our dinner with Dr. Ralph Winter that night. And we sat in LA traffic the next morning, just dead quiet. And so we laugh about that now. Uh, we ended up launching the ministry. Um, to this day, we, we hear stories about how it's reaching and touching uh, people's lives. So we laugh about it now. We laugh because we went there to go change the world. We went there to go do something significant. And here we are in Gladys Allward Dormitory on William Carey University, up in each other's faces with all of our sin. And so sometimes we feel like God wants to use us, but we have these areas that are unapproachable, unforgivable, unusable. And so let's, let's hop, jump into a little background here. Not as much as we did last week, so don't worry. But remember, so those of you that weren't here last week, remember, so Peter denied Jesus. All the disciples abandoned him in the garden. But Peter's even worse because he said, hey, even if all these guys over here don't leave, even if they leave you, I will not. So Peter sets him, him himself up here. And so Peter and John kind of follow Jesus to his first trial Peter is standing by a fire. He gets questioned. Do you know this guy? He says, no. Do you know this guy? No. Do you know this guy? No. And Jesus turns, looks at Peter, and he goes out and weeps bitterly. Now, at the time that John was writing this passage about Peter, Christians were being persecuted. They were denying their faith, and they needed to know, what would Jesus do with a sinner, with a denier like me, if I want to come back and be used by him and join in fellowship? So John 21 opens with seven disciples waiting for Jesus in Galilee. Jesus and, and, and the angels at the empty tomb all told these guys, I'm gonna see you in Galilee. I'll be there. Come find me. You'll see me. So the disciples, as we talked about last week, they go, they go to Galilee. They come. Is Jesus there? He's not. They look for him. They can't see him. So they go back to their vocation of fishing and after a night of catching nothing, a stranger on the shore directs them to a miraculous catch of fish. And John recognizes that it's Jesus. And so Peter puts his clothes on, jumps in the ocean, and swims to the shore, followed by the boat. And so we're going to pick up there with John 21, verses 9 through 19. We'll start at, we'll start at uh, 7, actually, 7 through 19. So it says, That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Not that anyone was counting. 
And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Peter throws himself into the water, as we saw last week, to meet Jesus. He has so much zeal, so much passion. Peter was passionate. God wanted to use that passion. But before he could do that, Jesus needed to break Peter of his pride. See, Peter had this pride, this self-assuring pride that said, God, I'm starting to think that you chose me here because I have it all together. You know, I'm kind of thinking, hey, I'm, I'm going to be used by you because I've got it. I've got this. He had a passion for Jesus without being broken over his sin. And you see, brokenness without passion is just defeat. If you're simply broken, you've lost that passion, that's defeat. But at the same time, passion without brokenness is very dangerous. Brokenness without passion is simply defeat. That isn't what God wants. But passion without brokenness is dangerous. And right now, at this part of the story, that's all Peter has. So we can look good. We can look good on the outside. We pour our time into Christian activity. I'm so zealous for Christ. I'm so zealous for church. I'm so zealous and passionate about world missions and raising godly kids and all this stuff. And meanwhile, and I know this is true everywhere, but it's true in suburbia a lot, isn't it? That meanwhile, while that zeal and that passion are going on, we all have things we're sort of ashamed for others to see, things that we're not proud of. We have things we think God can't use, things like sin, guilt, shame, and regret. And so after Peter falls completely flat on his face, denies Jesus, not once, not twice, three times, he comes up on that shore, and there it is. What does he smell? What does he see? A charcoal fire. When was the last time Peter smelled that? Well, John 18, 17 through 18 says this, it says, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now as Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked 
Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. So he comes up on the beach. He's still dripping wet in all his zeal and his passion. He smells a charcoal fire. See, Jesus could have made a wood fire, but he doesn't. He loves Peter too much to just leave him where he's at. And he does the same with us, doesn't he? God takes us as we are, hopelessly flawed men and women. He takes us as we are, but he doesn't leave us there, does he? Romans 8, 28 through 30 says this. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In those whom he predestined, he also called. In those whom he called, he also justified. In those whom he justified, he also glorified. We can be assured from Scripture, from God's Word, that God will not leave us in our sin. God has a plan for our life just like he had a plan for Peter. So we ask the question, can God use me? See, there's times in our lives, things that God is going to ask us to do where these little habitual sins, these little pet sins that we keep as we go about our zeal and our passion, there are times when God's going to say enough. And he's gentle with that. He's, he, he's a shepherd in that. He doesn't just hammer us over the head with that. But there's times when he finally just says enough. And what he's going to call us into requires the giving up, the breaking of those things which make us have passion for him without complete brokenness over our sin. The Bible calls this sanctification. It's a big word. The sanctification is the work of God's grace as he conforms us more and more to the image of Christ over the course of our lives. Now, this is different than the other big word, justification. Justification is a once for all time act of God's grace where he pardons all of our sin and makes us righteous and acceptable in his sight on the basis of Christ alone. So justification is God's work of saving us and sanctification is God's work of making us more and more like him for our benefit and for his glory. But here's what I do, here's what we do is sometimes we reverse the order of those. And I think that's why we ask this question, can God really use me in spite of all my stuff, in spite of all my junk? Because we flip that. And we say, God needs to clean us up first so that we're worthy or we look worthy, and then he can save us and use us for his purposes to which he's called us. But that's not the way it works. You see, here's the cool thing about today is that it works a lot like Noel's baptism. Noel doesn't do anything to be received into God's covenant community except rely on her parents' faith. Receive the kingdom like a little child, Jesus said, didn't he? Lay there and let the baptismal waters flow down your head as you get to be partakers of the life of Jesus based only on his faithfulness. And when Noel is 16 and doesn't always want to listen to the sage advice of her parents, it will never happen, but she will still need to receive the kingdom in the same manner as a little child that says, I have nothing to bring you, Jesus. Right? So we're invited into God's family not because of anything we've done, good or bad, 
but because God chooses to set his love on us. And then again, purely out of his grace, he allows us to grow in grace only by the power of his spirit at work in us as we walk with him over the course of lifetime. See, here's what happened to Peter. Peter had walked with Jesus for three years. He'd been used in incredible ways. But Jesus is about to leave. And he needs to deal with some things in Peter's life so Peter can be used by God in a new way. If Peter didn't let God deal with his pride and failure in this area, he would still have eternal life in Christ, right? Jesus would still use him in various ways. His work would still be kingdom work, but he would be unusable to God in the particular way that God is about to ask him to be used. So Peter's sin doesn't separate him from God. Remember Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ and nothing can reverse God's sovereign choice to save Peter But Peter's unresolved, unrepentant, unconfessed sin is about to separate him from the particular purpose that God wants to do in his life. See, Peter had a, Jesus had a task for Peter, but it wasn't the Peter of the pre-resurrection. It wasn't that Peter. That Peter that said, hey, I've got this. I'm one of the 12 because I have it together. Jesus had a task for a Peter who needed to be refined by the penetrating questioning of Jesus in order to do the work of the risen Lord and be reinstated. And I know it's kind of uncomfortable, it's not popular to talk about sin, but there's a lot of good news here. The first is that God will deal with any sin that's preventing us from being used fully by him if we let him. Does God use sinful people? Man, I hope so. Otherwise, he'd never use me and he'd never use you. He does use sinful people. Are there sins in our lives that God needs to deal with before he uses us in certain ways? Yes. There's a difference there. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when God brings sin to mind, we confess it. We trust that he has dealt with it decisively on the cross with grace and truth. See, we don't have to rack our brains thinking, okay, God, what, okay, what is preventing me from being used by you? And just think and think and think and on our own try to come up with this. And once we come up with it, we don't have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps as self-made men and women and say, okay, I can deal with this. After I do that, then I present myself to God. Okay, use me. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. See, God is dealing with our sin. He will if we ask him. We can trust that if we ask him, he will deal with it. Maybe not on our timeline, maybe not as quick as we would want, but he is dealing with our sin and he will continue to deal with it. What does this look like in my own life? It looks like a lot of things. One is that I'm incredibly concerned about what people think of me. Sometimes more than I care about what God thinks of me. That's going on right now. So I've struggled with this since I was a kid, and I still struggle with it. What if this church, so I'm, I'm, I, I introduced myself as one of the pastors here at Deer Creek. I'm also the church planting resident. So I'm going to be planting a church in a couple years in partnership with all you. And I think, what if it doesn't make it? What if the church plant fails? What if I'm that guy that's walking down the street and the pastor's like, oh yeah, isn't that that guy that farted on that guy's pillow and then his church failed? <laughs> I think about it. So God has to work. He has been working on this lifelong sin of mine 
to care too much about what people think. So if we want to be used by God, if we want to answer this question that we all ask, we have to realize that God is going to use you. He is using you. He will use you while we're still sinners, right? While we daily break his commands. How could he do that? How could a good and holy God use people that daily break his commands? But he does. He's not going to wait to clean us up. But sometimes there are things that he says, I got to deal with that. We're going to deal with it. We're going to deal with it together. So Peter climbs out of this ocean and all of his zeal and his passion, and he hits that charcoal fire. He smells it. He knows. He's taken back to that point of failure. What would it be for us as we came out of the ocean? That's a scary thought, isn't it? Probably not a charcoal fire unless, I don't know, you lit someone on fire when you're grilling or something like that. But what would it be? A bottle? Computer screen? Person's photograph? A sight or a smell where you fell hard in sin? I know one of mine would be a family picture from Easter morning around 2014. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? I hate that picture. Um, every time I see it, I get a knot in my stomach. So my wife and, and, and daughter over there, I don't know if Hannah remembers this picture, but it was Easter morning, hot, sweaty Orlando, and we're trying to make it to church to just glory in Jesus' resurrection together as a family. And we wanted to try to take a quick family picture, which is an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp or Microsoft Works. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that probably offended a lot of people. Um, so we take this picture. There's, this, there's yelling and there's crying and get in the picture. We got to have everybody in this picture. We got to get to church and hurry up. And, and somebody goes stomping off. And we're not going to do this picture without you. So get back in the picture. And they come back in the picture. And then, and meanwhile, I'm running up and back and forth with this self-timer thing. So, yeah, I didn't get it. And then everyone would turn on that person like a, like a tank of sharks. And be like, you got to smile next time. So this is all going on. And, and the threatening and the yelling, and the, it's just awful. And so we got this picture, and it's got kind of this, this fakey half smile, except me, because I'm like, all right, I got this. I hate it. It reminds me of my sin. It reminds me of my failure. That's my charcoal fire, one of them. It reminds me of my need for control, my failure as a dad. So for Peter, it was a charcoal fire. Now, now charcoal is only mentioned twice in the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? Once at Peter's denial and once here at his restoration. Only twice. But you know the amazing thing is that I believe for Peter from this day forward, Jesus is going to redeem the smell of a charcoal fire. Because Jesus wants Peter to think of his grace from now on, not his failure. So he's about to restore Peter, and it's going to be great. So the disciples gather around the symbol of Peter's failure. It has bread on it, and it has fish on it. And Jesus does something here, and we have to pay attention to this. What he does, he doesn't just jump right into to Peter's sin. Peter drags himself on the beach. Says, hey, what about the time you denied me? He doesn't dive right in. The text says, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. Well, that's interesting. And so with the fish. 
So Jesus begins breaking bread and handing it to them. Where have they seen this before? Matthew 26, at the Last Supper in the upper room with his disciples, the text says, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. Mark 14, Jesus took bread and broke it and gave it to them. Luke 22, and he took bread, broke it and gave it to them. John 21, Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. Now, obviously, this is bread and fish. It's not bread and wine. But before Jesus confronts Peter in his sin, I think he first wants to remind Peter of his death on the cross. See, it was at that meal where Peter uttered his declaration, even if they all fall away, I will go to the death with you, Jesus. It was at that meal where Jesus was breaking bread that Peter said that. But it was also at that meal where Jesus got to explain why he was breaking that bread, why he was giving it to them. He says, this is my body given for you. You see, here's what I think Jesus wanted Peter to catch. Each time we sin, we feel like we reset with God's favor, don't we? When in reality, God wants to reset us back to the cross. So each time we sin, we feel like that sin is now our starting point with God. Like we reset to when we weren't a child of God, like we start over. Okay, I was doing good, God, you were using me. I was doing great things. Oh, but then I sinned. Now I'm back to having to deal with this sin myself in order for you to use me. I'm doing good. All right, changing, changing the world, changing lives. Oh, there I go again. I got to reset. Okay, now God can't use me anymore. But for God, for those who belong to Christ, our starting point in terms of our sin is always the cross. He always wants to reset us back to the cross, to point us back to the cross when we sin. See, Peter might have thought, oh man, I just reset myself back to three years ago when I denied Jesus. All right, I'm, I'm back. I'm not a disciple anymore. It's like I never even met Jesus. But Jesus wants Peter to remember the cross. He wants us to remember the cross. His body broken for them, even for a soaking wet betrayer and denier who just crawled up on a beach. And I love that we have two letters from Peter, First and Second Peter. Peter would later write in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Those Peter's own words after this had taken place. So yes, our sin can mean that God can't use us in certain ways until he deals with it, but it never means we reset to the time before we knew Christ. We have to get that. We have to get that truth. See, when we sin, we only need to go back to the cross, confess our sin and thank God for paying for it on the cross. So they eat the bread, they eat the fish, and after the meal, Jesus begins to address Peter. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What does he mean by these? He means Matthew 26, 31 through 35. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep and the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus says to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Even though they all 
sin, I will not. We, everybody sitting around that fire knew how that worked out for Peter. They knew it didn't go so good. So first question, do you love me more than these? Really, Peter, do you love me more than these guys? Do you think I'm using you, Peter, because you're better than these guys? Do you really love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as none of us do? Or do you just love me more compared to these guys? Peter answers something like, of course. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The Greek here doesn't make it clear if he's including, do you love me more than these? I don't think Peter would say, yeah, I still do. Um, I don't think it includes that, but he says, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter's not yet broken over his sin. Remember, it's passion, zeal, no brokenness here. Jesus asked him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon gives the same answer. It's literally the same answer. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus asked him a third time, and this time something breaks in Peter. Now, there's been whole talks given, whole books written on the different Greek words in this passage for love. There's agape, there's phileo. And people say, and so Jesus, as he's asking Peter, he uses agape, and then he changes to the Greek word phileo. And so the idea is given that, well, phileo is a lesser love than agape, and so Peter's grieved that Jesus changes the word there, so he's kind of lowering himself to, to Peter's level. That's not what's going on. See, their conversation was in Aramaic. So, and, and by the second century, agape and phileo, even in the book of John, they were interchangeable. They didn't mean that anymore. So I wanted to mention that because I know it's a popular interpretation and it just doesn't work. See, because Peter is not grieved over the written Greek text here. He's grieved, that the text says, because he was asked a third time. Now, we can't analyze these guys 2,000 years later, but I wonder if that first question, I wonder if he's like, okay, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Whew, that's over. Oh, second time. Okay, uh, yes, Lord, uh, you know that I love you. And the third time, oh, He's asking me one time for every time I did not. He knows exactly what I've done. He knows the gravity of it. He's bringing it up again. Something breaks in Peter. He reminds Peter of each and every time he failed. Can you imagine the weight of that? Can you imagine? So Peter's not grieved because of the Greek text. He's grieved because Jesus is dealing with his sin conspicuously. We don't know if they're on a walk on the beach by this point. We don't know if they're still sitting around. You know, John was there when Peter failed. Jesus was there when Peter failed. So he's grieved because Jesus is dealing with his sin conspicuously and specifically. But something is different with Peter now. The text says he's grieved over his sin. And Peter answers, Lord, you know all things. And this is very different than the canned, oh, you know, I love you. What is this? Lord, you know all things. What is going on here? It's an invitation to look into Peter's heart. He is inviting Jesus to look into his heart. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And this takes us back to when Jesus first called Peter. Luke 5, 311. This is great. Luke 5, 311 says this. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. 
And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. Sound familiar? They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And when they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, John is there also, sons of Zebedee who are partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. See, when Jesus comes aboard Peter's boat and causes that miraculous catch of fish, they were astonished because they knew that only the creator, only God could cause that to happen. And so all of a sudden, Peter was face to face with the creator. And he's afraid. Because if this is the creator, then that means that this person who's now on my boat knows everything about me. He knows everything I'm thinking right now. He knows everything I've ever done. And he's in my boat. So it terrifies Peter. And his response is, go away. Go away from me. I'm a sinful man. I'm so hopeless, I'm so, I'm so lost, I've done too much, Jesus, just go away from me. Don't call me, don't use me, don't ask me to follow you, just go away. I've done too much. That was from day one. And so three years later, somehow, Peter has sort of lost that. And he says, ah, Jesus probably chose me because I have it together. You know, I know who he is. I'm, I'm healing people. But something breaks now. This third time Jesus questions him, he's grieved over his sin. Now, not afraid, but he's grieved. And he moves from a point of fear of God to grief over his inadequacy. And now he's not saying, go away. He's saying, look into my heart. What a change. What a dramatic change to invite the God of the universe to say, look into my heart. Lord, you know all things. Look at me, know me, and you will see that yes, I am messed up and broken, but I love you. Now that is a Peter that God can use. I know I'm messed up, I know I'm sinful, but I love you. Humbled, broken by his sin, and yet with a love for Jesus. See, now he has passion and zeal, tempered by brokenness over his own sin. And watch out, because that is someone that God can use. He doesn't quite get it yet. We'll see that next week. It says another boneheaded thing, I think two verses later. But he's grieved over his sin now. See, he knows that his love for Christ is never going to be enough. He needs Christ's love for him. And he knows he has it. He knows that he has Christ's love. How does he know that? And this is the next thing we have to get here. How does he know? Jesus never says, I forgive you. Does he? We read that in the text. He, there's never, I forgive you. That's what we force our kids to say, right? Say, I'm sorry. Say, I forgive you. I forgive you. 
No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. So why doesn't Jesus say it here? I forgive you, Peter. No, he doesn't. But you know what he does? He does something more. More than that. And this is the truth we have to get. We are more than just forgiven. We are invited. Isn't that awesome? We are more than just forgiven. We are invited. See, invitation is better than forgiveness because invitation always includes forgiveness. But forgiveness doesn't always include invitation. What do I mean by that? Well, there's people in my life and probably yours who have caused hurt and pain over the years. And with God's help, I can honestly say I've forgiven that person. But I would never want to be on a team with them. I'd never want to serve shoulder to shoulder with that person. I can say I forgive you, but if I'm choosing who to work with, they wouldn't be on that list. People like Dwayne, Tim, Joseph. I'm just kidding. kidding. They're going to be listening to this on vacation, just jump out of their beach chair. Um, But people I would never, never choose to work with. And I I think that's that's in in our human limitation. I think that's okay. See, Jesus could have just forgiven Peter, and Peter would have had the weight of his guilt lifted off his shoulders. He'd gone back to his boat free and happy. And most likely, I think he would have told a lot of people how amazing Jesus is, how wonderful Jesus is. But that wasn't Jesus' plan. He didn't want Peter to go back to his boat. He wanted to serve with Peter. He wanted to be with Peter. Brothers and sisters, Jesus wants us to be with him. And that includes his forgiveness because he has to forgive us in order to be with us. But he doesn't just say, I forgive you, but I don't really want to be with you. No way. Peter is more than just forgiven. He's invited. He's invited to serve with Jesus. He says, you're hopelessly sinful, Peter. Come feed my lambs. You denied me, Peter. Come shepherd my sheep. Your love is actually less than all these other guys, Peter. Come feed my sheep. That doesn't make sense. Who does that? But isn't it amazing? You failed me, you failed me, you failed me. I want you back, I want you back, I want you back. And Jesus ends all this questioning with a simple invitation. Follow me. We'll talk about Peter's death a little bit next week and and, and Jesus predicting that. But he ends with a simple invitation. Follow me. And that invitation is open to all of us. Follow me. See, this is the problem with only seeing our relationship with God about getting our ticket to heaven punched. That's all it's about. Oh, I get forgiven and I'm good. No, I'm forgiven, but I'm invited. See, Jesus' invitation is where mission and calling comes in. If all he wants to do is forgive us so we can just sneak past the gates of heaven, that's all he had to do. There'd be no invitation No saying, I want you with me. I want to serve alongside of you, but that's what he does. Can God really use me? Is God ever really going to call me to something? Yes, he has. Follow me. I want to be with you. That's mission. That's calling. So even as sinners, even as deniers, we're invited into his calling to show others, to tell others about God's forgiveness to make his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 
Can God use me even though I'm messed up and broken? Yes. See, Peter was still soaking wet with his misplaced zeal, and he was still stinging from Jesus' rebuke when Jesus issued him that invitation. He wasn't cleaned up yet. So there's a place for us here at Deer Creek. There's a place for us in God's kingdom. Not because we're good and gracious, but because we serve a good and gracious God. So what do we do with all this? As we close here, before we close, I I want to mention a brief note about guilt, shame, and regret. We all have those at times, maybe, maybe even now in this room. See, guilt is a legitimate feeling of condemnation. It's our rightful response as sinners to judgment by a holy God. Guilt thinks primarily about God. Shame is false condemnation responding to judgment of ourselves by ourselves, and it can never lead to an accurate assessment of a solution because often it's done apart from God. We don't need God to feel shame. It's all about us. How do I feel? What have I done? So shame thinks primarily about self. Regret. Regret thinks about the past without God's sovereignty and grace in the picture. When we imagine a past, when we imagine a future, we often do it without God. What if? What if this? What if this? What have I done? What have I done? What have I done? Regret thinks about the past without God's sovereignty or grace in the picture. We can get over regret by giving it back to God and claiming his sovereignty over all our mistakes. See, guilt makes us confess, shame makes us hide, and regret makes us stuck in the past and not want to move forward not want to ask, what does God call me to do? How do we deal with guilt? Forgiveness. If we're in Christ, we're forgiven. As we were at the cross, there's no more guilt. But see, invitation deals with all three of them, guilt, shame, and regret, because a holy God cannot be with those who are guilty of sin, so we we must be forgiven. And if we're openly invited to be with God in his work in this world, he's telling us, we don't need to hide. We don't need to, be stay stu- to stay stuck in the past. He wants to launch us into mission and calling in the future. Invitation moves us forward into something God has for us rather than keeping us stuck in the past. See, guilt is good. That's kind of crazy. Guilt is good because it sets us looking for the right cure. It's interesting, a 2014 study by the Association for Psychological Science showed that within three years of being released from jail, two out of three inmates go back to prison. What's the difference between the one and the two? Inmates who felt a sense of guilt over their crime were more likely to feel the need to confess and make reparations and not end up back in jail. Guilt made them focus on who they had wronged. But they found that inmates who only felt a sense of shame were mostly concerned about themselves and how they felt, and they became more and more defensive about what they'd done, and they ended up back in jail. Shame and regret are not helpful because they send us looking for something we'll never find. True and holy guilt will drive us to Jesus, knowing that he alone can deal with our sin. And you know the great thing? The gospel deals decisively with all three. It acknowledges our guilt and leaves no room for shame and regret. So what do we do with all this? 
when we feel like there's things that are unapproachable, unforgivable, unusable by God, or when we feel like our sin has reset us back to being unusable by God, let God deal with your sin and failure. Open that up and say, Lord, I want you to look inside and see that I am messy, I'm sinful, but I love you. And sometimes I don't even know if I love you. I need you to help me with that part too, right? Let God reset you to the cross. There's no room for shame, regret in the gospel. So don't be afraid to have Jesus take you to that place of failure. Don't, don't be afraid to have him light that charcoal fire and open that up. I know it's hard, but we serve a gracious God. Don't be afraid to go there with Jesus. Because as he challenges the sins that keep you from feeling useful to him, as you confess those to him moment by moment and remember the cross, you will be forgiven. But more than that, you will be invited. You will hear the invitation of Jesus ringing in your ears, follow me. Can God use me? Yes, pay attention to that invitation as you go about the ordinary things in your life and the extraordinary that God calls you to each day. And don't do it alone, okay? We all just got up here with little Noel saying, hey, we're gonna be there for her. And that's the same commitment we have to each other as a covenant family, isn't it? Whether you're a believer or not, whether you, you've ever had God sort of look in to your heart or not, we as a family want to say, we're gonna do this together. We're not gonna do it alone. So as you invite God to light that fire and say, ah, it's time to deal with this sin, don't do that alone. And don't feel like you ever get reset back, but reset yourself to the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God. We thank you for reminding us of our helplessness before you. We thank you that you don't just forgive us and then say, go away, or forgive us and and just say, that's good enough. You made it into heaven. What more do you want? No, you invite us. You invite us to be with you in spite of our sin. And Lord, you are so big, you are so sovereign that you even use our sin to glorify you. I pray that we would go out from here knowing that you have called us, you have invited us. You know everything we've ever done everything we are going to do. And yet, if we will let you, you forgive us and you invite us. And we thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.